that little video there just sums up the whole matter, doesn't it? And it just illustrates it so perfectly. To courageously live against the stream of injustice, to walk humbly with our God, to be rightly related to everybody. Um, I want to start by, by uh, building off of the video as well as something that I said uh, last week. It has to do with this concept that we're all made in the image of God. And what I showed last week was that in the, in the ancient Near Eastern world, and it's always important to understand the Bible in its historical context. Words mean things in terms of uh, the context that they're found in. But uh, um, in that context, everybody knew, everyone assumed, it was just obvious to everyone that there's one person who is allowed to be called the image of God, or a God, and that is the king. The king was viewed as being way up there with the gods. In Egypt, they even thought the king or the, the, the pharaoh was a god. But it's the highest honor you could give anybody. It's even higher than king. Because you have to be a king in order to qualify for this. Image of God. Now, understanding that cultural context, listen again to what the author of Genesis says. It says, Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind, God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This author just applied to every human being the honor that was afforded to one person in all the other cultures around Israel. What he's saying is humankind, if you're any kind of human, there's only one kind of human, that's a human human. And if you are that, then you are a king. You are a queen. You are royalty. And the author doesn't put any qualifications around this. And it's just amazing. I mean, the folks at this time, not only did they only believe that one person could be king and one person could be in the image of God, but most didn't even have a conception of a common humanity shared by all people groups. In Egypt, the word for human was Egyptian. And there's been a tendency of, of cultures throughout history to, to think that way. They assume that their culture is in some way superior, their ethnicity is in some way superior, and, and therefore has the right to rule over others. And so this is the mindset. There's not even a common, common humanity concept. And this author comes out and says, every kind of human being is a king and queen that is meant to rule, is a child of God that's meant to rule and, and reflect the character of God and the will of God on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, it doesn't matter how, what color you are. It doesn't matter how tall or short you are. It doesn't matter how much you own or don't own. It doesn't matter how able-bodied you are or disabled. It doesn't matter whether you're neurotypical or neuroatypical. All those distinctions that the world can put so much importance on, such significance on, meaning into all that, all of that is to be, it, it, it's utterly irrelevant when it comes to answering this question, do you bear the image of God? Are, were you created to rule? Are you born royalty? And this author says, everybody, everybody, friend, foe, everybody is in the image of God. Maybe the most amazing thing about the passage is it says that even it explicitly specifies men and women, male and female. I mean, that nobody at the time is thinking this way. Nobody at the time sees women as being equal with men, let alone in the image of God. Uh, no one would have the audacity to suggest such a thing. Even throughout most of the Old Testament, women are property. They're owned by men. They're bought and sold. Uh, rights are traded. It, it's, it's part of the bartering system. They don't have their own rights. And, and no one's suggesting that they're on equal footing with a man. But here, this author, 
It says male and female. God created them. Praise God. Male and female. So it means, women, you are as much in the image of God as, as any man could ever be. Women, say amen. amen. You reflect God. You are created to be a mirror of God in your own unique way. Uh, and so it's saying something beautiful about women. It's also saying something beautiful about God. That God has, yes, all positive male characteristics, but also all positive female characteristics. God is as, as feminine as God is masculine. God is, or no more masculine than God is feminine. And so it means that while it's wonderful to sing you're a good, good father, we can also sing you're a good, good mother, and you're a good, good friend, and you're a good, good savior. You're just a good, good God, a good, good rescuer, redeemer, hallelujah, and reconciler, praise God. So men and women are all made in the image of this God. And notice this, that as they are in the created state, they're all given the authority to rule over the earth and the animal kingdom. But no one is given authority to rule over one another. There's no hierarchies. Everyone's on the same footing because we have this in common. We're in the image of God. And so there, there's, there's, no, there's no hierarchies. There's no structures. None of that rating system. No one is over another. Now, some have tried to argue that the fact that Eve was called Adam's helper uh, before the fall, they've argued that women's role, intrinsic role, even before the fall, is to be man's helper. Um, and that's how it was read throughout most of church history. Uh, you, you're here to help us. You help a man carry out what he needs to carry out. You're, you're, you're a good office mate, office mate with benefits. That's what the whole program was all about. Such a little helper. And, okay, so, and this, has been, you know, this has been the view throughout most of history. It was only in the 60s, the 1960s, that a female Hebrew professor, women finally starting to have access to read the Bible on their own and, and, and being able to interpret it on their own. And they tend to see things that men sometimes don't see. Thank God for that. And so women notice something curious. That the word helper, it's usually applied to God. The one who receives that title the most is God. So I don't want, you shouldn't be thinking that helper means something inferior. In fact, what this lady showed was that, that, that it, 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 the connotation is rescuer. God is our helper. God is our rescuer. God is our redeemer. So actually, if you want to get down to the degree details, God created woman because we needed rescuing. <laughs> we, God saw it. This guy's not going to run this garden on his own. <laughs> Women, get in there to help him. Uh, absolute, absolute equality. So we're made in the image of God. That's what we have in common. And that means you're, you're, you're made with dignity. You're made with worth. And, and that means that anybody who for any reason looks at another person as lesser than. Anybody for who for any reason looks at another as less than a king or a queen. You are tarnishing the image of God. You're insulting God and you're insulting God's image. And you're tarnishing your own image because your job is to be loving each other, other humans, as God, as God is loved. You're replicating that love down here. And you're not doing that if you're looking at a person as down or lesser for any reason whatsoever. Or if you're subordinating them. See, I say all that to say this. Racism attacks the very essence of what it is to be human. That's why it's, it's a grievous sin. Um, there's a sense in which all sin is equal, but there's also a sense in which it's not. And it's a sense in which it's not is, is this, that not all sin is equally destructive. Uh, it doesn't destroy, kill, steal, and destroy with the same efficiency. Uh, different sins have different social and individual consequences. 
And looking at it in that light, I would say that, looking at it historically, that this is among the most destructive, ugliest of all possible sins. It is, it is, it is, it's wreaked such havoc, brought such misery, such woe, and done so much to tarnish our being made in the image of God. Racism isn't just a sin. Though it is a sin, the church needs to do a better job at saying that, amen? But it's not just a sin. This is an image of God tarnishing sin. This, 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 is, this goes, goes to the core kind of a sin. This is an essence of humanity denying kind of a sin. This is a, a people enslaving, heart deceiving, socially destructive kind of a sin. This is like the idolatry par excellence sin or the heresy par excellence sin. This is the sin that's right out of the strip, pit of hell and eats away at society. This is a cancerous sin. It's a disease sin. And it goes at the very heart of what it is to be human. And there's this, this tragic news, folks, uh, for us in America is that our country was founded on that sin. It really, it really was. And it, it's not like a, a disputable thing. It, it, it was very, very explicit. It went by a lot of names, but one of the main names was Manifest Destiny. It's Manifest Destiny. It was, to these folks, just obvious. Manifest. It was obvious that we are destined, we white people, we Europeans, are destined to rule. It's just so obvious. And, and, and with that mindset coming over and claiming this land as our own. Yeah, there are folks who are already living here, have been living here for centuries, but we broke every treaty we made with them, put them on increasingly small reservations. If need be, we just slaughtered them or indirectly killed them by having marching ridiculous distance to get to the land that we promised them, only to take that land away from them when we discovered there's oil on it. And, um, and, it's, it's, uh, and what we didn't kill with our own hands, we killed by bringing over all these diseases that they had no immunity to. And it was just massacred to this day. Folks are just on these reservations. And that we just claim it as our own. This land is my land. It's not your land because I came and stole it right out of your hand. <laughs> that, that was inspired right there. <laughs> Maybe not. But then with the African-Americans starting in the early 1600s, we just started importing free labor, making slaves out of these folks. 12 million people in a process of 250 years, 12 million folks were brought over. Actually, only 10 million were brought over because 2 million died in passage. We stacked them on these boats. All those little notches there are, this is an actual drawing of one of the cargo ships. This is what happens when you commodify human beings. And each of those little marks are, 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 are people. They, they, they were stacked on, on, on like these super small bunk beds and, and just kept there for two to three months, depending how long it took to make the passage. Sometimes it was longer if the weather wasn't right. And, and one out of five of these folks died. But it was a living hell, the descriptions of, I mean, imagine being in that for three months, stacked on top of each other in your own defecation. And it, it was just... Disease-ridden, it was inhumane. Then they, they reached the shore, and that's when things really start to go bad because they may give them a quick little bath in the river right when they get off the boat to sell them for a higher price, put them on the auctioning block, and then people start doing their bidding. And they just got off the boat. And some plantation owners were kind enough to buy whole families to keep the family together, but some didn't have any problem breaking, it up, breaking them up. I'll have the daughter. Oh, I think I'll have the son. Oh, I think I'll take the wife. I don't need the husband, though. And families just split apart, usually forever. And 250 years of feeding this racist beast 
of uh, treating folks in inhumane, disgusting ways, the opposite of, of, uh, of, of what it is to walk justly, the opposite of what it is to treat someone like a king and a queen. And civil war was supposed to end all that, but of course it didn't. As soon as blacks began to make headway in getting some representation in government, at one point, we had 13, and right after the war, 13 congressmen were, were Af- for African Americans. So they, they're starting to be represented. But whites begin to see, Southern whites in particular, begin to see that, that they're, they're giving away power. And they don't want to give away any power. They like to call all the shots. They want to be in charge. And that manifest destiny mindset is still, it, it, it still was prevalent. It still is prevalent. To some folks, it's obvious that whites are superior and that we're supposed to rule. And if we don't rule, things aren't going to go well. Because our track record is so good on that one, you know? <laughs> and so they start doing all, finding ingenious ways to keep these freed slaves in slavery. Uh, ingenious ways. So they came up with all these black codes, uh, rules that uh, test you had to pass if you're going to vote. And, and they just would find out things that, that a slave wouldn't be able to do, like, like sign your name. Well, you have to be able to sign your name if you're going to vote. And you have to have someone bear witness for you. You have to have a grandparent who voted if you're going to vote. And all these ad hoc rules to keep them from power, and then rise up the, the KKK, uh, and that was all about suppressing the black vote. Uh, uh, hanging people, burning people on crosses because they wanted to vote. Um, and, 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 and so even though it was legally, uh, blacks legally could, could, could vote, in the South, it's estimated that within like 12 years after the Civil War, less than 2% were actually doing that, because to do that was at great risk yourself. And they find other ways of keeping the uh, uh, slavery system going. One was uh, through the jail system. Did you know that for about three decades, uh, they had a thing called a convict, uh, uh, leasing a convict. You could lease a convict uh, for free, for free, for free oh, virtually free labor for whatever cost. You hired them for the day. And so these prison systems, I mean, cha-ching, here's a way to make money. And so they would arrest Black folks, usually black males in particular, for any reason whatsoever, you looked at the woman inappropriately, uh, you talked back to an officer, just make up stuff, and slap a five-year sentence on them, and now this person's going to be doing free labor for five years. And they, they, they say the conditions in this convict release system were worse than slavery. Because at least when you were a slave, the owner had a vested interest in keeping you somewhat healthy. You are his property. You're, you're an investment. But in the prison release system... No one's got your back, because if you die, they just arrest some other person, and, and it, it's a virtually infinite uh, resource you can have. And so there's not, there's not one instance, not one record of anyone surviving more than 10 years in the convict release system. Many, many died. Their, their lives were just wasted there. And this continues to this day. Uh, a book that I've recommended a number of times, and I'll do it one more time, probably not the last time, but it's Jim Crow, the, the new Jim Crow by uh, Michelle Alexander. An incredible, it's an eye-opening book. It really, it, it, I really recommend it. It's just, um, and, and the basic thesis is this, that whites have always found a way to at least minimize, if not totally eradicate, uh, blacks from having a voice, keeping them down. And, and, and so in, in the early 80s, they started this war on drugs. Now, at the time, only 2% of the population in America thought that drugs was a serious problem, but they declared a national crisis. And within five, five years or so, everyone was believing it was a national crisis. Uh, and so there's war on drugs. They're going to go after it. They're going to arrest these dealers, and, and three strikes and you're out. 
and I want to say this, that I, 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 I believe that America's justice system is among the best in the world. And I think on the whole, individual justices and individual police officers really try, try very, very hard to be neutral. I, I, so don't take this as an insult on any particular officer or just or, or, or anything of the sort. It's just saying that it's not perfect. Can we agree with that? It could be improved. It needs to be improved. And one of the main ways it needs to be improved is that it's got to become more fair. What's wrong with this statistic here? This is war on drugs been going on for 30 years. And... Over 80% of all the people who have been arrested have been non-whites. And the one thing we know for sure, because there's so many, a lot of studies on this, is that white folks use illegal drugs about as much as every other kind of folk. You know, so the disparity isn't like, oh, those folks just like to use drugs. There's something else going on here. And you have to wonder, why is it that they decided to crack down on crack cocaine, but not the powder? Because white folks use the powder out there in the nice suburbs. In the inner city, they use the crack. And then the, 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 the legal sentences for using crack are like 10 times as high as what they are for using the powder, even though it's the same substance. What's wrong with this picture? The new Jim Crow, the new Jim Crow, and, and the stats just are not good. And we think up here, you know, we're in liberal North Minnesota. We, those Southern people, oh, it's terrible down there. Folks, it's more obvious down there, but we ain't that far along. You know, there, there, I, I didn't know this till this week, but there, there's a lawsuit, and it, as part of the lawsuit, the ACLU uh, was, got all the police records of uh, police arrests from uh, January 1st, 2012, all the way through uh, September 31st, uh, 2014, so 33 months. And there's 97, roughly 97,000 arrests were made during that period of time. And these are just arrests for nonviolent crimes. And the, the statistics were, were, were rather surprising. Here's just a few of them. Um, well, I, 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 could, I should start off with this. There's like all these different categories, 40-some different categories, where a, a crime was charged more than 100 times in this 33-month period of time. In all those categories, there's only three that showed no racial preference. One was owning a, uh, a, uh, something to inject a substance into your body, and I don't know what the second one, but one thing that was absolutely fair is that whites are just as bad at, as, as blacks or Hispanics at picking up dog poop, okay? So when it comes to picking up your dog poop, there's justice. In every other category, there's not. So for example, uh, you are, if, if you're black, you're 8.7 times more likely here in the Twin Cities to be arrested for a nonviolent crime than if you're white. 8.7. If you're a Native American, it's a little fair, you're 8.6 times more likely. Uh, to, than, than, than a white person to be uh, pulled over. Hey, I love this one. Uh, there's almost 4,000 arrests in this 33-month period of time, 4,000 arrests for people loitering with the intent of committing a nar narcotics offense. That's a crime. You're either going to buy it or you're going to sell it. You're loitering with that intent. 4,000 arrests were made. Uh, you're 25 times more likely to be guilty of that or be charged with that if you're black than if you're white. And I didn't know this either, but it was in the report that I read. You can get all this online. It's, it's, it's out there. Um, that that crime doesn't require any drugs to be in evidence. Uh, they don't have to prove that you were trying to get... You look suspicious. Why else would you be hanging out around there? You know, and it just happens to be that if you're black, you're 25 times more likely to look suspicious than if you're white. Uh, some things have got to be improved. <laughs> Drastically. Uh, if you're black, you're nine times more likely to be pulled over by an officer during the day. But at night, 
you're only twice as likely. And as this report made clear, what's the explanation for that? And the one that jumps out most obviously is that during the day, you can see who you're pulling over. On the whole, uh, black folks form 13% of the American population, but the 31, 31% of all the folks who ever get shot are black. 39% of all who get shot unarmed are black. And though they occupy 13% of the population, they occupy 46% of the prison space. What's wrong with this picture? Uh, folks, so this, this, this is going on. that We keep feeding this beast. Um, They've been feeding it for centuries, and it's still there. It's got a little more subtle. It's behind the scenes a little bit more, but it's still operating here. We don't live on... It's not a level playing field. It is not. Land of equal opportunity, well, yeah, not so much. Um, and the thing is this. If anything, it seems to a lot of us, I think it's as obvious as the nose on your face, that it's getting worse. Would you agree with that? And that's just here in America. Around the globe, there is this rising xenophobia. Fear is gripping people. And leaders are using that to control people all over the place. In formerly democratic areas now, there's a tendency towards totalitarianism based on fear. It's the fear of the other. Those people are coming. The terrorists are coming. The rapists are coming. The, 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 the caravan is coming. They're going to take away our jobs. They're going to take away our way of life. We've got to stand up. We've got to fight this. And so countries now are more and more becoming like gated communities. We're on the inside, everyone else has to stay out. So we've got 70 million, more than 70 million people right now living in no man's land in these refugee camps. A couple thousand right on our border where there's still kids who don't know where their parents are. All over, there's a tendency in this direction. And folks, here's the thing. When it's getting darker outside, and it is getting darker, the world just is a less friendly place than it used to be. America is a less friendly place than it used to be. Diversity is, is less celebrated than it used to be. It's, there's much more suspicion around it, much more anger. It's become politicized. It's become a tool, a weapon, and it's just ugly. Amen? It's ugly. There's only one good thing about ugly, and that is that it contrasts with beauty. <laughs> uh, when, it's, when it's darkest out, the light can shine the brightest. And folks, here's where we come in. This world needs some light really bad. Oh, it, need, it needs this light really bad. What I want us to see is that... Th this is the center of the center here, folks. Because um, we're going after this beast that, that gets to the heart of what it is to be human. Jesus settled this all on the cross. Did you know that? He settled this all on the cross, and now our job is simply to manifest it. We don't even create anything new. We just manifest what's already true. So here's what, what, what Paul says in, in Hebrew and Ephesians. Every service, I've referred to it as the wrong book. What is wrong with me today? It's Ephesians chapter 2. Not Hebrews, not First Peter, nothing else but Ephesians. Okay. This is packed, so follow this. But it, now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace. Jesus is our peace. In his flesh he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall, that is, the hostility between us. He has abolished the law with its commands and ordinances, praise God, that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace, and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. Okay, in a nutshell, here's what he's getting at in Jesus uh, he's talking about the divide between Jews and Gentiles, which was the paradigmatic divide of humanity. Okay, so this is the deepest, from a Jewish perspective, the deepest divide there is. Solve this divide and you've solved all divides. And that's what Jesus does on the cross. 
And on the cross, then he took the, the, the two groups and in his body reconciled them because he got rid of the law that separated them. And he created, Paul says, this one new humanity. The old humanity had gotten tarnished. All these playing fields, everyone looking for their own advantage, all this competition, all these judgments, all that racism. It's gotten tarnished. So one of the things that Jesus did on the cross was he destroyed that and created a one new humanity, a new humanity that would restore what the, the first humanity was put to have. Namely, everyone's on the same footing. Everyone's made in the image of God. Everyone's acknowledged to be a king and a queen. And, and Jesus died then to reconcile people, not just to reconcile people to God, but to reconcile people with one another. That's what, that's what that one new humanity is all about. And, and see, here's the thing. If, if Jesus died for it, that means it's, it's what we call the atonement. It's the doctrine of the atonement. It's, it's a central Christian doctrine. If Jesus died for this, then it's something that has got to be on our front burner, something that we're willing to die for. Here's what I don't get. A lot, a lot of churches will preach reconciliation with God. Oh, Jesus died so you can get saved. That's wonderful. But that's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is, yeah, Jesus died so we could be reconciled. So racism would be put to an end so the image of God bears can really be imaging God. They're two sides of the same coin. And so if a church isn't preaching that, this isn't some addendum. This isn't a nice little addition. Like, oh, it'd be nice to once in a while do it on Martin Luther King Day or something. This is the kind of thing that churches are to stand for. Think of what a heresy would be if a church decided, hey, we're not going to preach forgiveness of sins anymore. Even though Jesus died for that. Yeah, it's just... We'll get... No, that'd be terrible. That'd be... Well, it's just as terrible to say, that, to, to, to omit from your preaching the need for us to manifest this one new humanity, praise God. If Jesus died for it, then we got to do it. Somebody say amen. If Jesus died for it, then we've got to do it. If it's worth him dying for, it's worth us dying for, putting on display that one new humanity, which just means that we are the people who commit to the, the way we see people, the way we treat people. It's got to be uh, according to this, your king and your queen. Uh, to root out of our heart anything that has any, any lesser than, that imputes less than to anybody for any reason. And to be people who manifest to this world so that's what, is, what it's like to be an open community, an inclusive community, a diverse community that's united under Jesus Christ. What does it look like for people to not invest any of the social distinctions with any significance? Because one thing that matters is that you're a person that was created in the image of God and Jesus thought you were worth dying for. A community that's just based on that. Not, not to do that, oh my gosh, oh. Tell children's church I'm going to be 30 seconds over. Um, okay, so there, there's, there's five quick tips, okay? That, these aren't tips. These are absolute must-dos. Uh, if we're going to manifest this new, new humanity, we've got to do it like this. Number one, declare war. You've got to declare war. Here's the thing about Martin Luther King, why, what I love most about his theology, and it's the aspect of his theology that's the most forgotten today. What you get down in the media is very much of a secularized Martin Luther King. They've taken out all the good theology. But Martin Luther King, he understood that, that justice, to, to engage in justice was to, to declare war on the powers of injustice. He understood that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And before he would lead these marches, he would tell people, this doesn't get repeated anymore, but... He would tell people, I don't want you marching unless you can honestly say that you're, not, you're doing it not just for your own liberation, but for the liberation of the white person. Because they're enslaved to their own power. They're dehumanized too. And so we're doing this as an act of love towards them. And I don't want you marching unless you can vow before God and me that, that, that you will not retaliate. Because you're doing this out of love for the enemy. No matter what they do, you do not retaliate. They may release the dogs and they did, but don't, you, you don't fight back. They may hose you down with, with hoses. They may imprison you. They may beat you, and they did. 
but you're not to fight back. Rather, you'd be praying for them. See, that, that's what makes this a kingdom movement. And you know, this, this movement was started in the church. It was the church that did this. The, the rest of the culture jumped on once the church started doing it. That's how it ought to be. Rather than the church trying to jump onto something that's already out there, we ought to be leading on this whole thing. Hallelujah. It's a declaration of war. Number two, we've got to have relationships that cross cultural divides. Uh, it, it, it's, it, if it's real, it's got to be relational. Everything in the kingdom is like that. So here's the thing. We're fallen human beings, and, and life is tough, and we don't like to make it tougher. And so whenever we cannot slide and go the easy street and go the comfortable route and the convenient route, we tend to do that. And when it comes to choosing friends, we almost always do that. Friends just sort of happen. But see, the thing is that it's always more convenient, more comfortable, easier to relate to people who look like you and talk like you and think like you and act like you and dress like you and all the rest of like, like you. That's easy. And so it tends to be the case that we tend to have homogenous friendships. Um, unless you've been intentional at going otherwise, the stream, the stream of the culture will, 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 will push you in that direction. You know, that, that Minnesota, I didn't know this this week. I learned so much this week. It's so fun getting to preach because you get to learn so much. But we have got the highest per capita immigrant population of any state in the union. We, we do. We've got, we are 2% of the general population, but we have 13% of all uh, immigrants here. Trouble is, yeah, we, we, we welcome them in. That's wonderful, but we have done nothing to integrate. And, and uh, um, so we're, we're an incredibly segregated uh, state. If, if it, to manifest the one humanity, we've got to be pushing beyond those, those boundaries. Get outside of that stream. If we're followers of Jesus, we have to be intentional about where we live and about who we relate to. Everything should be on purpose. We're living on purpose. Maybe most people out there just ask the question, can I afford it and do I want it? But we've got to ask, does God want it? And, and I encourage you just to submit your time to, to God and ask, how are you to use this? And in particular, how are you to be intentional at, 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 at diversifying your life? My wife and I, uh, 15 years ago, decided to move into the city just for that reason. We, we just, we're aware that our lives are less enriched because we, we just don't cross cultural paths very much. Everyone around us pretty much looks the same as us. Uh, so moving to the city, and man, is it interesting. It's just more interesting. I'm not saying everyone's supposed to do it, but... It is interesting. And you learn so much and you find out so many different things. And I just feel like our lives are enriched because of that. And so there's choices you make that can make a difference. Like Jesus chose to go up to Galilee through Samaria. He was supposed to go around it, but he chose to go through it because there's a Samaritan that he wanted to meet there. He did that on purpose. So also, think about your life on purpose. So I, I could go to the white barbershop or I could go to the black barbershop on Selby. They're about equal distance from me. But I go to the black barbershop. Why? Because it's a lot more fun. Man, it's, it's, a lot, it's, it's so fun. It's interesting. And, and we're talking, they're watching Judge Judy and arguing about that. It's just, it's a blast. And they take a, they, they work 45 minutes on your hair. It's not one of these 10-minute clips. Okay, get out of here. Same thing, the coffee shop that's predominantly white, the coffee shop that's predominantly black, and I go to the black shop. Uh, I, I feel like people are friendly, more friendly there. They can use the business more, but I, my, my, my experience gets enriched. There's a gas station that's an SA by our house, and that's pretty diverse. Uh, but there's another gas station that is run by a bunch of Muslims, and I tend to go there because it's the only place where I get to speak Arabic. Salam alaikum, alaikum salam. And, and, and I'm getting to know these folks, you know, you're building relationships. My point is just do it on purpose. Live on purpose. 
get out. Change up your routine. If you keep on doing normal, you're going to have the same results. Diversify your life. Number three, serve. One of the things you can do is just to fight injustice, serve in any kind of organization that fights injustice or that fights poverty. We've got a lot of them here at the church. You can volunteer at the food shelf or help out in, in the, uh, the refuge. Um, we have after-school mentoring programs, all sorts of ways. But be involved in that. That's also a way that you're going to diversify your life. You'll get to meet people and befriend people who look different than you. Find things to serve in. Get out there and, and fight it. You know, the thing that was beautiful about the civil rights movement is that, yes, there were great leaders like Martin Luther King and, and Lewis and others, but it was everyday people who just said, I'll, I'll, I'll sacrifice, I'll step up, I'll do this. And, and, and that, that's what made this thing go. It's everyone doing their part. Everyone doing their part. Little, big, and small, how, whatever God calls you to. Number four, be informed. Um, yeah, that is a big one. And here, here, I have to start with a confession of sorts. You know, I am a passionate believer in keeping the two kingdoms distinct. You know that. It's one of the things that we're founded on here. The kingdom of God is not, not a version of the kingdom of the world. We keep those distinct. And out of the ambiguity of the political system, yes. And never invite the, the toxicity of the political realm into the church. That's... I, I, I believe that's the core of my being. But I have in the past, and I, I don't think voting is an obligation. Uh, some people would disagree with me, but I don't think it's an obligation. But I do think, you know, you have to bring it before God, and, and, and it may be the case, he said, yeah, you can give your opinion. Or maybe he'll say, no, don't give your opinion. And I had to, for years, not give it because I could not get involved with it without getting sucked into it. Or at least it was too much work to not get sucked into it. But I have sometimes belittled voting. Uh, like, oh, if you want to, go ahead, but just don't let it mean anything. And I, because of my relationships with people who are not white, I've really come to see, and thank you for showing me this, that I can't say that without speaking out of a position of white privilege. And it's easy for me to say that, because I'm pretty sure that some people in Congress are going to have my back. I have a, a white guy, uh, yeah, the, I will be represented there. So whoever's in there, it's not going to mean that much to me, but man, there's others whose lives are at stake. And, and a whole lot can depend on that. And so if, if your conscience lets you vote, make sure that you include the poor and race issues and all of that on your radar screen. Don't just do the American thing of saying, well, how, is, my, is my wallet a little bigger or thinner than it was four years ago? Okay, I'll, it's, don't vote just on that. Vote on, on, on how it impacts other people, which leads to my last one, and that is break laws if necessary. I think I just broke one. <laughs> I'm not supposed to. But look, at here, here's the thing. We, we, we want to obey the laws of the land as much as possible. As much as, but not because they have any authority over us, but because our Lord tells us to obey the laws of the land. Don't get distracted with stuff. But if ever there's laws that do not, that, 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 that prevent me from living out what I'm supposed to live out, then I have to break it. So in Acts 3, they, they, they gave a law to the disciples saying, you can't preach. And the disciples said, sorry, uh, no can do. We've got to preach. Uh, should we obey God's word or the laws of, 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 of people? And they're willing to get arrested for it. And sometimes we got to do that. And, 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 and it's, it's like this, that, that I'm not trying to come up, I'm not smart enough to come up with a, the right immigration system. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not weighing in on that issue. But what I do know is that I am called and you are called to treat anyone who is an other, an outsider, a stranger, as though they're one of our own. That, that, that's a persistent biblical theme. I, I, I have to love these folks. 
as one of my own. And so if there's a person, theoretically speaking, who's here that I know about at the congregation, and, and, and this person is being deported back to El Salvador, let's say, even though they've lived there for 23 years and have a family and have never committed a crime of any sort, they're just being yanked back there where her brother was just killed in this town, this drug transactions. She's fearing for her life, but she has to now leave her family to go back there. What does it look like if I love her as one of my own? The law says I'm not supposed to help her. But there's a higher law that says I am. And that may have some consequences. You know, that's, so let, let the Spirit take you wherever that's supposed to take you. Uh, I, I'm just supposed to share that. You're supposed to digest that. But something like with the Underground Railroad. You know? Uh, and there's most folks at the time who thought that was wrong. Oh, they're, they're going against the law. But uh, these folks said there's a higher law. And that's the law that we have to obey. What other consequences may be. Amen. Would you stand? Uh, I want to encourage you to stick around. We got donuts and treats and stuff out there. And, and uh, uh, share the stories that you have in your bulletin. Each one has a, a different unsung hero there. And, and just get to meet some people. And cross cultural lines. And show hospitality to people. Remember, there should always be, when you come to church, don't just come for yourself. Come with a commitment to welcome somebody. Uh, to make someone feel at home. Is that my... Please turn off your cell phone. At the, <laughs> my phone's on. Uh, Please turn off your cell phones at the present time. <laughs> hey, uh, I'd like to ask the prayer teams to come up here. And if you're here this morning and have anything that could use prayer, please come up here and pray with these folks. And if you're here this morning and you're not a, a follower of Jesus, but there's something pulling on your heart saying you should check that out, come up here and talk to these folks. They'd love to explain to you what's involved in that. As we leave here, folks, can we do it as kings and queens who are committed to acknowledging everyone else as being a king and a queen and declaring war against the forces of racism and prejudice and living out the mandate to be the one new humanity in Christ Jesus if you're... In agreement with that, say amen. 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 Go out. Love on your neighbor.